This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. This week, we do something we should have done a while back. We go over some basic terms and concepts for misinformation studies, starting with basic definitions, moving to some basic concept definitions of terms that people have heard before, and then move on to slightly more complicated things. There's a lot more to talk about after today, but we're aiming to get everybody generally oriented. This week, we'll aim to get a lay of the land on some common terms that people use when they talk about mis- and disinformation. So, Sean, why don't we start out with something simple? Misinformation. This is a word that we've used a lot. Define misinformation. So misinformation is basically information that's false, but not necessarily intentionally false. So I'm trying to think of an example. I have an idea. I think that teens on TikTok were the reason that Trump had a really reduced rally attendance in Tulsa. And I share that on Facebook, but it might not be 100% true. Is that misinformation? So that, that could be a good example of misinformation because your intent wasn't to deceive. So the difference between miss and we'll talk about disinformation in a second is often intent. So am I trying to deceive versus am I just circulating potentially incorrect information? Okay. So if it turns out that, and this is a a conversation that we've had offline a little bit about how it's kind of the claim that the, that, that particular rally had its, had its attendance reduced by TikTok is a little dubious and that there are plenty of other factors that go into it. So if it's partially untrue and then I share it without knowing that, is that also misinformation? So yes, the difference is that with disinformation, there's an intention to deceive. Uh, okay. With disinformation, you don't necessarily mean to deceive. So you're only sharing part of the story, but it's not that you know the entire story and you're only sharing a, a specific aspect. It's that you're you're sharing only the piece that you know, but you don't know that there's more to the story. Okay, so you're kind of hooked by an appealing fact um, or an appealing fiction, and there might be some truth peppered in there somewhere. But the whole point of misinformation, or and we've mentioned this before, the whole tech uh, one technique of misinformation is to treat the communication like cement, right? Where there's chunks of it that are in there that are truth, and then there's chunks in there that make it false. But those two particles together, or those two kinds of substances together, kind of harden and create a misinformation. Yeah, or kind of like Jello. There's a bit of wiggle room in there. Yeah, I'm trying to think of some more metaphors we might be able to use to think about misinfo, but it almost feels like one of the things that makes it so good or one of the reasons why it's such an effective technique to mix truth with fiction is because most of the time when someone shares it or believes it, they don't validate every fact. They tend to gravitate towards the facts that they kind of already think are true. Yes. So going back to the the Tulsa rally TikTok example, that's a really appealing story to think that, especially for those that are anti-Trump, that a group of teens work together to become activists to thwart, you know, a huge political campaign. So that's, that's actually has a, a really appealing story that has legs. And so people hear that and they just, they want to share that, but that's not the entire story of what happened at the rally, right? There's a combination of coronavirus plus TikTok. And also TikTok is not just full of teens. There are actually a lot of adults and senior citizens that are also on TikTok. So there's multiple layers of misinformation in the story that you just told. Okay. But thinking back to intent, because this intent thing is a really interesting side of it. So we tracked the one news outlet, 
nytimespost.com, which is uh, has the domain registered in Turkey. We have no idea who actually, all the kind of ownership information beyond that is just obscured. We don't know who actually owns and runs that site. It's obviously supposed to look like a New York Times publication of some kind, but it's not. You know, we talked about other colleagues who posted stories from nytimespost.com. So the people who are circulating these stories, which are a mix of truth and fiction, that is misinformation. What about the people curating the content on nytimespost.com? Is that misinformation or disinformation? So we can we have to make some assumptions to to determine which camp we fall in here, whether it's mis or disinformation. But again, disinformation is false or misleading information that is intentionally created or intentionally spread for a particular purpose. So that could be financial gain, that could be political gain, some sort of objective. So I would say, using that definition, the folks who are creating and curating content for the NY Times Post, which as an aside note, their logo even is stolen from the New York Times. It is such a good fake newspaper. I was shocked, right? Because the letterhead looks the same as New York Times. It even sounds kind of like a kind of quick hits news subsidiary of the New York Times. They did a good job. Well, and the name too. So you just, you kind of look at the name, you look at the domain and it it looks so similar that unless it's something you're looking for, as we talked about in, in our first episode, right? Those eight it looks just like a news website. Unfortunately, you can just buy a news website template for very little money and achieve what appears at first glance to be right a comparable level of polish. So if we put those pieces together, the close resemblance to the New York Times, the types of stories that they're circulating, there's a lot of effort into the design of this misinformation. So that turns it into disinformation. So they're intentionally creating, intentionally curating, and intentionally spreading this information. So that means it's disinformation. Okay, okay. So I've got disinformation as being purposeful. So if the people who are aggregating this content were just, say, looking at Google search trends and trying to collect news stories and recirculate them that were just on Google search trends, it's possible that they weren't intentionally deceiving anybody. They were just being kind of opportunistic in their news selection. And it just so happened that this was a story that was a misinformation item. The reason I'm kind of talking about it in this way is to try to understand where disinformation ends and misinformation begins and vice versa. So it's the intent of the actor. So we can actually switch back and forth. This example of the of this website, the uh, NY Times. NY Times Post. Yes, NY Times Post. They're getting more popular, unfortunately. So this example of the NY Times Post is intentional. And then, so say, Michael, you see an article from this site it looks really close to the actual New York Times. The name just feels familiar, even though it's slightly off, but you're you're in a rush. It's right before you are going out to get coffee. So this was maybe six months ago now. Right. I wouldn't be going out to get coffee right now. Yes, at the beginning of July. So sometimes I just make it outside just to feel like I'm going somewhere on my camping stove. But not this weekend as it's 117. Not this weekend, but, you know, sometimes you really got to feel like you're going places. This is disinformation. But then say, you know, you're seeing this site, you 
think the story might be legitimate about these TikTokers. So you share that information. Now we've switched from disinformation to misinformation because your intent was not to deceive. Your intent was to share this information because you thought it might be true. Okay. Okay. So I think, you know, in my own perspective, I, I feel like my, my own habits of thinking are to see it all as misinformation because it feels really difficult to tell. But there's also some use between distinguishing between mis and disinformation, right? Yes. And we also, we normally talk about the distinction between mis and disinformation in terms of information operations. So they're intending to use misinformation as a tactic to spread chaos or to cause problems. We often talk about disinformation as an information operation because it's intentionally designed, you know, a whole process that folks are going through to cause chaos and all the other cases we often just label misinformation. Great. Okay. So let's think about a disinformation operation. A disinformation operation could be something like we decide we're going to start a newspaper that just has complete clickbait news that is completely fake, but all we're looking for is the ad revenue because we have outrageous titles and outrageous content. That is a disinformation operation. Right. And so say we could just take pictures of celebrities and accuse them of things that are outrageous. And then, you know, folks want to come there to see what celebrities are doing. But that's a disinformation campaign because we're intentionally putting out incorrect information in order to profit. Okay. So what's an example of another disinformation campaign? I tried to choose not the most innocuous, but the one that had the least kind of strategic interests in mind. Another example of a disinformation campaign would be foreign interference in an election. So a country might pay a journalist to write misinformed stories, incorrect stories about certain political actors. And then that spreads in an election to cause problems for certain political actors that the other country is not a fan of. And that's an intentional campaign to cause chaos for one of the political candidates. And so this is the intelligence service of a foreign government or some other actors? What are we talking about here? So it could be intelligence service of another government, of course. It could also be corporate actors. So companies have a lot of interest in who's in power due to regulation. So they can fund certain campaigns to bring out information, which some of it may be true, but then they put enough of a twist on it to make it you know, deadly for someone who's running for office. Okay. Okay. And so trying to think of other disinformation campaigns. Well, you know, another example um, could be much more innocuous than this, but it's to really just kind of really boost our market. We talked about a like a predatory news organization, but also just kind of defaming somebody for personal gain would be another reason, right? That's different from defaming a celebrity. That's different from duping people into clicking on your news story, but really trying to kind of attack someone's reputation or a business's reputation is a misinformation campaign or sorry, a disinformation campaign. So we could think of this as an example uh, of a, a dubious competitor might release information about a competitor's product saying that there are these problems or they might go on to different review sites and post incorrect reviews saying you know their product doesn't work or it's inferior or broken, they refuse to fix it all of that incorrect. And then that's a disinformation campaign to take a competitor down so that they have a a competitive advantage. Or boost somebody up. I feel like reading Amazon reviews might be helpfully construed sometimes as a series of competing 
disinformation campaigns about products where people can actually buy product reviews, really operationalize a positive review for your product. I know Amazon is kind of constantly fighting with this kind of behavior, but saying something really nice about yourself or nice about your product could also be considered a a disinformation campaign. I feel like it's kind of a gray area. If maybe the product is actually okay, it's not necessarily deception, but masquerading as another person independent who evaluated this product of their own volition, that is disinforming. And so it seems like Amazon reviews through this perspective could be considered uh, a battlefield for disinformation. I imagine a lot of folks have encountered ads for free products that you order from Amazon, then the company checks your order to make sure that you've actually put in the legitimate order. And then when you give them a five-star review for that product, then they offer you a refund. So then you have free product to test, but that's only in exchange for a five-star review. So in many ways, we can consider that to be a disinformation campaign because they're paying folks to buy a product and then submit reviews some of which may be true, but some of which may not be true because there's a financial incentive in those reviews. Okay. Okay. So we're almost automating the people to turn out the good review content for us. So it sounds like disinformation is any rock we turn up online, we might see some disinformation, but it also sounds like misinformation and disinformation here are connected and that disinformation can precipitate misinformation. Yes. And it could also be the reverse, too. So we could have someone spreading some misinformation online, then someone else could pick that up and see, oh, I know this is not true, but if I continue to spread this information and I hype this line, then I can harm someone. So politicians might do this often. But I think in the mis- and disinformation conversation, this might be really helpful in certain instances to see what's the difference between the two. But I think the impact is even more important than whether something is misinformation or disinformation. Yeah, I agree. I feel like sometimes it can be helpful to put your disinformation glasses on because you're trying to understand motivation, tactics, and strategy, or even source and mechanisms. But the misinformation lens, or you know, it seems like the direction you're, you're kind of pushing the conversation right now is maybe being agnostic to intent can be very helpful sometimes. Yes. So sometimes we get caught up in, is this miss? Is this disinformation? And other times I think it's more helpful to look at is what actually happened? What did this cause to happen? What harm has emerged, whether or not the harm was intended? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So thinking through misinformation, disinformation, and disinformation operation, let's talk a little bit about what people can do with accounts. I think early in the days of kind of internet studies, I think we can both recall one of the interesting kind of fascinations about it was people's ability to become or to represent themselves as something else, right? There was this back in the early kind of internet with things like Second Life or other kinds of virtual environments. Everyone was going to have to look up Second Life. I don't know, maybe some people have heard of Second Life before. Sean, did you ever get into Second Life? This would have been in the early early to mid-2000s. So this is a virtual world, one of the most popular virtual worlds, which Second Life is still running. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I don't know if yeah, it's not as popular, but I think I'm the reason I'm talking about Second Life right now or even some of the really early days of uh, the massive multiplayer online games is this idea that you could be someone else online. And there was this kind of liberating potential to be someone else online. And this is especially important because it means that you get to leave behind 
some aspects of your of your meat space, right? To use the cyberpunk term of your meat space identity and explore the potential of a virtual identity. We would be remiss in talking about this utopian imagination of the early internet without mentioning that it really never got to that point, right? I know there was an early belief in the internet that if we just kind of sprinkled the internet at various places in society, so in political discussions and democracy and commerce and medical care, that magically all of the problems and all of the ills in the world would be fixed. So basically take one internet pill in the morning and the next day all of our harms would be gone. Yeah. Or people who, you know, would find it liberating to be anyone they wanted online because of the various kind of intersectional biases and persecutions that they face in their life. It turns out all of those kinds of things existed on the internet and were brought to bear in kind of really brutal ways on people's lives. I mean, I know who would have thought that we bring our biases our, and, and issues online. We don't leave those at the computer and become a completely different person. Yeah, or mutate them and kind of supercharge them into doing some of these other kinds of behaviors that we're talking about today. And oftentimes we talk about this as the internet is mediated communication, meaning that the computer or a cell phone or some other device sits between us and the other person that we're having discussions with or the other person we're talking about. And so behaviors that we would never exhibit in person, things that we would never say. So like hate speech, other things that we might never say to someone's face because there's a screen in front of us that's protecting us from seeing the other person we can actually do some pretty bad things. Yeah, it's like the malevolent version of there are some conversations that people are more likely to have over text, only this is far more malicious and far more harmful. That goes reminds me of one of the more famous early internet cartoons from the New York Times. And so picture it, there's a dog sitting at a computer and the caption under it says, on the internet, no one knows I'm a dog. But now with social media platforms, being anyone you want to be has a very different kind of context. That is a point of exploitation of these platforms is that through the account system, it's not so robust where it validates your identity to the point where you can represent yourself. You can, you can still be anyone you want to be online to some extent until a troll doxes you, or you can represent a virtual account or an account that is not directly controlled by you, you can represent that as a person too, right? So that flexibility and identification now has tipped in a non-utopian direction. Well, but it also depends upon the platform that you're using to express yourself. So some platforms have more stringent identity requirements than other platforms. But I want to go back. You mentioned a couple of terms. You said troll and doxing. So can you talk a little bit about what a troll would be? Yeah, so a troll account is generally one that is interested in a a kind of disingenuous conversation where a a troll is more interested in the effect of the conversation or of the kind of comments rather than an actual dialogue. I feel like troll of all the different comments or all the different terms that we're kind of talking about today, this is the one that probably people have some functional understanding of, right? And trolling is just in regular speech, like, oh, I'm just trolling, um, which means I was just kind of joking and being sarcastic, which is an interesting use of that term, considering that true, genuine trolling means that you want to really dismantle an entire conversation or bring something to a halt just through completely outrageous comments that have no investment in anybody there or in any outcome of the conversation at all. I think one of the favorite places of trolls are online newspaper comments 
or Reddit or other places where, and oftentimes trolls at first seem like they want to engage in a genuine discussion. And then you realize they're just there to sort of stir things up. The troll account, it's almost like their hobby is to create discord in an online discussion. Yeah, exactly. And there's a, for the troll, there is a sadism kind of built into your mode of conversation. You want to outrage people. You want to upset them. It brings you happiness to make all those things happen. So that's, in general, that's trolling. So uh, I guess for an example, I'm involved in a lot of dog communities since I have some dogs and I volunteer at the shelter. And in the dog training communities, there are a couple trolls that come up and anytime anyone discusses any type of training, they're just always there to talk about how that training is abusive and incorrect and not helpful, no matter what the, the training type is. And so now when that person pops up, you'll see other people you know, quickly within a few minutes say, oh, ignore that person. They're always here trolling. Yeah. So in that way, uh, it's almost like a trolls create sort of a librea tar pit and then welcome everyone into this tar pit. So we all just get mired down in whatever their technique is and tactic. Concern, outrage. Exactly. And then we're just kind of stuck there until the conversation just dies like the dinosaurs. Of all of our like hilariously kind of awkward metaphors that we used to talk about things, I think that one is definitely first prize so far as being the most effective. But doxing, doxing was another thing that was talked about. Doxing is basically disclosing your personal information details online. So we talked about that utopian splendor of being able to be anyone you want and having this protection of anonymity, which is exploited by trolls because you can't really find out who they are. They get to hide behind that virtual identity and harm other people or harm other conversations. But doxing is kind of overkill in the other direction, which is you decide that you're going to find somebody and you are going to basically disclose all their personal information, address, contact, so that people can harass them in real life rather than just on whatever platform that they're working on. And sort of the original example of doxing even offline would be in the early abortion, anti-abortion discussions. Anti-abortion protesters would often release the personal information of abortion doctors so that folks could go to their homes and harass them. And then that technique has now been brought online and we see this is the case on, on all sides. You might see videos of someone harassing someone about a mask. And then 20 minutes later, we have their phone number, their address, their workplace. And then 30 minutes after that, they've lost their job. Yep. Yeah. Or swatting, which is a subset, I feel, or a, a cousin of doxing, which is to call a SWAT team on someone's residence as a form of harassment. That's a particular favorite in gaming communities. So that sometimes that will be done as a joke that, you know, say someone takes out your team in the game. So then you might call the SWAT on them. And there are multiple cases of people dying as a result of this, or someone has the incorrect address information and they send them to the house across the street, for example, instead of the actual gamer's house. Yeah. And the reason we're talking about doxing and swatting in a larger conversation about some kind of key concepts and misinformation is just to indicate that there are key points that are pretty well known, like doxing and swatting, and then other points that aren't as well known where the kind of virtual space and the non-virtual space interact in very important ways, right? So it's easy to pay attention to doxing and swatting because they're normally it's a pretty dramatic event, but misinformation existing online affects the way that people think and do stuff in real life all the time. So even a troll account can affect quote unquote real life, even though the troll account only exists in virtual space, that troll or an online troll can do things like dox other people and coerce them and be threatening. A troll can spread disinformation. 
can spread misinformation. So trolls are kind of like a modality, right? Or how you how you kind of conduct online. And those can be fonts of mis and disinformation and other kinds of coercive things that in general make it harder to reason through an information environment. They're, they're kind of antithetical to the idea of the internet as being something where you get information and get informed and connect with people. And the idea of doxing is, is this a coercive method that can often be used to prevent someone from engaging in a conversation around whether something is mis or disinformation. Yeah, totally can silence you. Doxing and swatting can just completely silence you. And then once that's happened, then you have a chilling effect is that people no longer want to engage with that community, even if they're saying something that might be incorrect. They're now afraid to engage with that community because of the threat to their their physical and mental person. I, I think trolling is one way to manipulate an online account to create either misinformation, disinformation, or create an environment where that kind of thing can flourish. But other kinds of account manipulations exist as well. So whereas with trolling, you can kind of hide behind the anonymity of your account to to feel like you're more comfortable to troll. With something like a sock puppet, how would you describe a sock puppet? What's the best way to understand a sock puppet account? This is a a similar manipulation of, of, of the affordances of an account on an online platform. So a sock puppet would be, a, would be an account that you often create that's separate from your primary online identity. At Reddit's a great example of this where sock puppets are in pervasive use. So you have your maybe main Reddit account, and then you might create a, a temporary throwaway handle that is a sock puppet account that's not connected at all to your main handle. And then that allows you to then do things anonymously away from your primary handle. Okay. And so what's the advantage of using something like that? Well, so you're not tainting your, 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 your primary account. So, for example, then you could talk about issues that you might be uncomfortable discussing. So you could talk about political issues. You could talk about relationship issues, other things. Or you could tell maybe a, a really funny, embarrassing story that happened to you in a subreddit, but you don't want that connected to your primary account. So then you can go off sort of in this, this new private account that you've created with a different identity and you can share information that you don't want anyone to connect to your, your primary account identity. So it's another way of hiding, but kind of w- literally one degree removed. Yes. And it, it, it's not, it has positive and negative connotations, right? So a sock puppet you could then use to troll. So that means you could be an upstanding member of the community using your primary account. And then when you want to totally trash someone, you then log out, log into your sock puppet account that's disconnected from your upstanding online citizen account. And then you move into your sock puppet account and then you just cause chaos. Or you could use your sock puppet account to discuss something that you might be embarrassed or that might be sensitive. So then that doesn't get connected to your primary account. So is this like when, like when Mitt Romney, did, did do you remember the name of Mitt Romney's Twitter? Like he had a second Twitter account that wasn't connected to him at all, but he just used it to kind of speak his mind and follow other people that he would normally be shunned in kind of Republican politics. If I think his name was like Pierre, did I just in, invent some kind of hilarious Twitter handle for Mitt Romney just now? Uh, no, he did. Um, yeah, it was Pierre. Yeah, it was Pierre. It was his uh, Twitter account. It was <laughs> Pierre Delecto. That's what it is. Yes. So it was yeah Pierre Delecto so that he could tweet what he was really. So is that a sock? Pu- that's a sock puppet, right? That's an example of a sock puppet. Okay. 
But then this is an unmasked sock puppet. This is exactly what you, the purpose of the sock puppet is. So you can go do these things without anyone knowing who you really are. It's like a, you know, name to plume. But oftentimes the danger is it's easy to connect those two together. It's not the same level of protection as other forms of exploiting the, the account system, but it maintains a little bit more human control. As in like you and with a sock puppet account, typically there's a person posting to the sock puppet account. Like an actual human being has to sit down at a keyboard and type out the stuff for it to appear as a sock puppet or in a sock puppet account. Yeah. So you would log out, log back in, and this is just a disconnected account. You can use some automated control. So that would be, this could be what we would call a bot. Yeah. Cause I think to me, that's where I would draw the line between a bot and a sock puppet is once a human being doesn't have to enter for every message that you see, a human being didn't have to type that thing out. Um, there's a one-to-one relationship between user and message that you see there. So often sock puppets and trolls are, are these human controlled accounts where there's actually a, a human driving the computer and typing in the content. Okay. So it's easier to troll from a sock puppet account is what you're saying. Well, yes, because oftentimes when you're trolling, you get banned. And so, or your account is deleted or removed or kicked out basically. So you want to have this account that you can throw away an account that you don't care about. So then you can create another one and go back. And if the account disappears, no harm. I'll just create another one in the system. So then I can keep doing my trolling. So the, the Pierre Delecto version is really the most innocuous version of the sock puppet account that we can think of. Yes. Or like, you know, when, when parents start an Instagram account and follow their children, that's sock puppeting, right? Uh, I mean, it could be. You've heard you've heard of this trend, right? Where parents will kind of invent a fake Instagram account of someone their child's age, uh, like when they're a teenager or something, and then follow their teenager on Instagram. So their teenager doesn't realize that they're being surveilled by their parents, but because of the sock puppet account, the parents are able to keep their tabs on them. I've heard of that, but often the joke is on the parents because the public Instagram account is not the actual content. You know, you have your Insta, then you have your Friendsta, and that's a private account that the parent has no clue exists. So in the end, even though parents think they're being kind of cool by creating a sock puppet account to follow their children, that's not their real persona. It's actually the private account that the parents have no clue is around. That's the content that parents really want to see, but they'll never see. Yeah, it's just the internet could be a miraculous technology for sharing information or just a special kind of hell for parents. Uh, probably both. Or the reverse, it could be a special hell for teens because there's now, you know, parents are creating Facebook accounts for their young children and continually posting pictures and basically broadcasting their their children's adolescence. And And then when they grow up, and they see, oh, I have this account where the whole world's been kind of following me and seeing pictures of me. What do I do with this now? So bring it back to this conversation. Does this mean that kids can claim that their parents created a sock puppet account that was representing them? Or is this is this far beyond? Do we need a new term for parents invented an account for their children that their children had no control over? I think we need somewhat of a new term, but in the way that the parent account is a form of a sock puppet because it's not the actual child operating the account, it's the parents. I mean, I have a sock puppet account for my dog because, you know, he's deaf and blind. He can't really type and post pictures on Instagram. Yeah, he's really bad at computers. I say that he can, you know, people think it's funny. So technically my dog has a sock puppet account. Okay. Well, because it's in the voice of your dog. Yes. Which is different. Okay. 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 So... 
we need a different name for that, like a helicopter account or something like that. Well, moving on. Let's think about what, what happens when you don't have a one-to-one relationship with that account, when it's not a human being posting this stuff, or when we start to automate some of the content that gets put out of some of these accounts. Well, this is when we start talking about bots. So a, a bot account is basically a, an account that is automated. So there's not a human directly behind that. I mean, a human wrote the code to control the bot, but it's not the actual human typing in the tweet and pressing the button or choosing to follow users. That account has some automated activity. And in a lot of the public discussion of bots in the news media and other places, they just they sort of accuse any problematic account as being a bot. And, and that's, that's sort of a, a synonym for a disingenuous account. But there are actually a lot of bots that are really useful and really helpful and that we love every day. Bots have a bad reputation. Yeah, I, I think in general, well, we can get into the nitty gritty about how people tend to use bots for automated content posting. But I think that there's a couple, I, I think, well, let, let's talk about the different kinds of bots that we can really put together, right? One bot or some kinds of bots are meant to spew content that that gets kind of generated from a source. And what I mean by that is, Sean, have you made, you've made Twitter bots before, right? Yes. So the idea is that you have this kind of kind of source of training language and then that bot will, or this is a bot that's going to post automated content, I should say. Uh, One way of going about this is if you want it to post similar kinds of text a lot, you have some training text and you have that bot trained on that training text, and then it will spew out kind of recombined language based on that training text that kind of approximates that training text in the first place, right? So So a couple, I think, really interesting examples. So there's a pollution monitor on the U.S. embassy in China in Beijing, and there's a Twitter account that tweets out the daily, this bot's no longer active, it was active, but it would tweet out the daily pollution levels in Beijing. And so it was automated process. And these pollution levels would differ from the official Chinese government pollution levels of Beijing every day. Okay, so the automated task, rather than generate some text from your training text to create a partisan environment, instead was report data periodically from this source. Yes, and you could also argue in a way that the you know, the pollution bot in, you know, the U.S. embassy in China was also trolling the Chinese government a little bit. So we can combine all of these together. So there are certain, the, the bots circulating information that's making maybe China uncomfortable. Other examples are mainstream media. So if you ever follow the New York Times or Fox News or NPR, those, those are bots that automatically tweet out the stories as they're posted to you know, the Fox News or the NPR website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a even there's a kind of mix of those things where there are some bots that will actually monitor communications online and then reach out to people whose communications fit a particular profile. A kind of uh, a more benevolent version of this was actually uh, something like this was developed at ASU a few years ago where they had trained the bot to recognize the kinds of tweets that people send out when they're at risk um, for suicide or self-harm. And then that bot would intervene by tweeting to them resources about kind of treatment and mitigation. 
that is an example of a bot that might be able to detect certain kinds of tweets and then respond with something, you know, that we, I think is, is good intentions here and very different from other kinds of bots that might say, uh, try to detect certain kinds of political speech and then boost that political speech. There are other bots that monitor Twitter for discussions of earthquakes and they then connect that with monitoring stations throughout the world. Yeah. So, I mean, bots encompass a wide range of non-human information actors. In the context of misinformation, I think a lot of times we're talking about a couple different kinds of bots, right? There's the, the troll bot account. It's a bot that's trained on a certain kind of speech that will troll people or create a pitched and very partisan environment. What other kinds of bots do we encounter specifically in kind of misinformation conversations? Well, and there are bots that will specifically, you know, retweet certain political accounts, or there are bots that will take, like, for example, there's a a bot that takes President Trump's tweets and then retweets them as a press release. Yes. So there are ways that an individual bot can make interventions, like spewing out a bunch of material or boosting really harmful links, right? So this is where we can start working bots together with disinformation is that if I've got a story that I wrote up and it's specifically meant to deceive or victimize certain people, then my Twitter bot is just going to boost that story over and over and over again so it reaches a higher profile online. Or there might be bots that, so I could pay a company, for example, to boost certain types of content or boost certain followers. And when these bots work in concert or work together, so you have multiple bot accounts, we call that a botnet because these bots are connected and coordinating their actions. So you, there are companies that you can pay where they have hosts of Twitter accounts. And then you can say, I'd like you to boost this information. So they might retweet it. They might use certain hashtags. They might mention certain accounts. And what they're trying to do often is connect with trending topics on Twitter and other platforms to then boost those platforms. Because once you're on like a trending topics, that's actually a really powerful marketing tool or political marketing tool. Yeah. So a a single bot is only so powerful. I like, for instance, if I tweet so many links in an hour, Twitter is just going to shut me down for a little while. Right. Because that looks suspicious. I could mix it up a little bit. I could tweet links for a little while and then tweet text for a little while. I could get even more sophisticated and only tweet within the hours that a normal person might tweet in that time zone. But in the end, right. A, a, a lone bot is only so effective. And so, yeah, you got to, if you really want to move the needle with your bot, you need a bot net, which is, as you were saying, a, a whole bunch of bots that are connected together. The interesting thing to me about the, the bot scene is how you can, how you can kind of buy account, right? You need a bunch of accounts, right? To, to put, set up a bot net. And you can buy, sometimes you can buy accounts. Yeah, you can buy access to those accounts because the other problem is you can't just create so, so say we want to boost this podcast, for example, because we want more than just our, our colleagues and our departments to listen to us. Right. Sometimes not. But yeah, generally, yeah. We can't just create 50 Twitter accounts and then have those 50 Twitter accounts follow us and start tweeting about our podcast because that looks really suspicious. And that's a pretty low bar for a platform like Twitter, for example, to just shut those accounts off. Like they're disingenuous activity. They're all registered from the same IP address. <laughs> right. They're all on ASU's campus. You know, we get shut down by the university and shut down by Twitter. So what do I do instead, Sean? 
Well, so you go to a company that has these sort of sleeper accounts, so to speak, that they created a long time ago and have a profile of acting like a human, so to speak. And then all of a sudden they start maybe tweeting about a political campaign or for in our case, they might start tweeting about our podcast and how awesome it is. And so that's harder to detect because those accounts have a history of not being problematic. So you say go to a company, but when you say like go to a company, like I'm going to go to Starbucks, like that kind of company or another kind of company. I would say that's another kind of company. Okay. Okay. Like they spell the word wares with a Z. Something like that. Chances are they're offshore something and you're sending them money via Bitcoin Got rather it. than writing them a check or giving them your credit card. Right. Because the other move on this is to is to mask your IP address and bulk register a bunch of different accounts. Right? You could use like a you know, something like, a, I think certain bot herders, like bot herder applications will allow you to mass register accounts. But, but that, that brings us to the idea of a bot herder, right? Which is that software application, which allows you to manage a whole bunch of bots at once. And, you know, a bot herder can help you fulfill some of those core functionalities of a botnet. So Sean, you had mentioned the idea of boosting a particular person's signal. You could ask, you know, through the bot herder, you could coordinate your bots to do that kind of thing. So you're calling this a bot herder, but you could also think of it as the conductor of orchestra. Yes. The conductor is telling, you know, the violins or the oboe or the drums or other things. I'm not in music, as you can tell. But the conductor is controlling when folks come in, when folks leave. So we're, we're strategically having these, these accounts post on social media at various moments in time to make it look like it's not coordinated, but it is coordinated. Yeah, yeah. And, it, you know, flooding a particular hashtag is something that you can do. Sending or retweeting a particular person is something that you can do or spreading a particular link or set of messages is, is something that you can do. So it, it's not like a botnet always is up to the same thing. If anybody has ever kind of tried to look at bot activity online, a lot of times they'll try to look for what the, you know, so Bot Sentinel is a great example. Bot Sentinel is this online service that allows you to track bot activity online. And one of their kind of front pages is what hashtags have the most bot activity on them. And what we're talking about now is, is kind of behind the curtain there, which is somebody is controlling a lot. It's not like a whole bunch of individual people have one bot a piece and they're doing this kind of stuff. Someone is systematically controlling many bots to operate on a single hashtag because they're trying to influence a conversation. And the, the sort of art of determining that is very difficult. And some bot detection tools use better metrics than others. Uh, many other bot detection tools use very basic metrics. So they try to figure out how many times an hour can someone really post? How many, how frequently can they post? So what time of the day should someone be awake? What time of the day should they be asleep? When should they be at work? What types of activity do we expect as a normal account? But a lot of accounts actually fall outside of that. We have a lot of accounts where people schedule posts and they can use tools to, you, know, you might write a tweet and then you might want to schedule that to go out on a Monday morning instead. Or we have super activists. So a colleague of ours that we've worked with, Marco Bastos at University College Dublin, 
you know, he wrote a paper about these super activists that participate in hundreds of social movements every year, and they tweet out more than the average human. And so a lot of these tools would classify them as bots, but they're not. And then there's also cases where there's bots and people. So there might be some automated activity on an account, and then there might also be a human on an account at the same time. Yeah. And this idea of humans behaving like bots, you know, we saw this with the pandemic film where they're the retweet rate or the share rate, the, the time interval between share, between receiving it and sharing it or between clicking on it and sharing it was so short. It looked a lot like bot activity, but it's not, it, they were, they were people, but it was just bot like behavior coming out of people. And so, you know, with something like a, like a botnet, there are different ways to discover bots and to detect them. And you can get web browser plugins that can help, but no, no bot detector software is going to be able to a tell you definitively if some, someone is a bot or not. And then, you know, B sometimes that's completely immaterial because human beings are perfectly capable of behaving like bots in a lot of different contexts, right? They can, unreflexively tweet out material they can't or unreflectively i'm sorry but reflexively tweet out material right they cannot review any things that they see but then they can also just can spread or tweet on a particular hashtag over and over and over again because they're just on one particular kind of idea so there are some ways to tell the difference between bots and non-bots but it's very difficult to know for sure. And it's also very difficult, especially if all you're doing is scrolling through Twitter, you might be able to see, suspect if someone's a bot, but it's really hard to tell what other bots they're connected to and who is ultimately controlling those bots. And the whole purpose of a botnet is actually to get the content outside of the botnet. So you use the botnet to kind of move content around. It looks like it's active. It looks like multiple sources are interested in this. And then that moves from the botnet to the wider population. Right. It's exploiting the way that these platforms like rank different topics or, or, or trends. Right. And it's because and if the information stays within the botnet and it doesn't leave, then it's ineffective. Right. Right. We've wasted our money if it doesn't leave the botnet. Yeah, we're trying to hype up some ideas or a person, you know, so if you're looking at a, an edge list, right, or if you download data from Twitter and you're trying to look at all the different tweets and retweets that have happened in a certain time period, you can spot a bot pretty easily because they at so many people and then send messages, right? Or that's one kind of bot that's easy to spot is, is what I should say, is that they're constantly trying to signal to people and get them to click or click on a link or spread something. So this hailing people constantly is another thing that bots can do that we didn't quite cover in some of our earlier conversations on bots. And that is a way to, to do exactly what you talked about, which is to tie other people to this conversation and get them to spread it to their circles and get them to have their audiences and the people who trust them to pick it up instead. So we think about what are the types of kind of currency on social media platforms. And these can be hashtags, these can be the volume of tweets mentioning a certain user. So these bot networks are trying to plug into those types of currency to then suck folks into their conversation and then have them take those conversations outside of the botnet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you have somebody who is really trusted and not like a celebrity, right? You can have people who are not and don't rise to the celebrity level, but have a pretty steady following on social media. That is a that is a really important target for a bot. A bot wants that kind of person to be obviously if a celebrity tweets out 
their material, that's awesome too. But there are people who are kind of medium-sized fish on social media who are great targets for bots. And you want that, the bot, the whole object of tweeting at those people and circulating links to those people is to get them to circulate that content somewhere else. Now you may see the opposite, right? Where that bot will try to boost that person's signal or make them seem more important than they actually are. Again, just to call, like, so Dr. Judith Mikovits, right? Who, when she's kind of talking about pandemic, if you actually scope her Twitter account and look at how many suspected bot accounts are retweeting her activity, there's a lot, a greater proportion then most people don't have bots retweeting their material or engaging them. Dr. Judith Mikovits has an awful lot. And again, the idea is to boost her signal. Why do we want to boost her signal? It really depends back to this concept of disinformation, the motives behind the person operating the botnet. And also the sort of techniques you're using to, to boost. So what can we do to add legitimacy to a claim? And so we go back to a lot of our information literacy training and is it are multiple people discussing this? Are there multiple sort of seemingly legitimate news sites? Are there multiple links? So that combines together, you know, bots create that environment that's kind of fertile to make something look legitimate or seem legitimate. And then once, you know, once that job has been done, then everybody kind of carries on that conversation outside of the bot network and the bot network's work is done. Yeah, so we've really kind of created a, a virtual environment for the untruth and then hoping that it just gets, lives outside of that virtual environment somewhere else. So a way for people to be skeptical of other people online is to say, you know, half your followers are bots or, you know, half the people who are on this hashtag are bots. And people always respond really negative to that kind of allegation. It feels like that itself is not a good adaptation to addressing bot behavior online is just to accuse everybody of being a bot. Well, that's borderline trolling behavior, depending upon the context. So that can be a way to delegitimize someone's conversation. Oh, well, that can't be right because there are a lot of bots sending that information out. Yeah, it can be particularly awkward when you actually look at the conversation and there really are a lot of bots there. It kind of, the the activity of a botnet is really interesting because not only does it do all the things that we've been talking about, but it also brings everybody in that conversation to a total impasse. If one side says, hey, I think the other side is really boosted up by bots. It really leaves the other side and not, you don't really have a lot of outs there. You know, is everyone supposed to say, oh, well, it looks like bots are boosting my position. It, I need to do a lot of self-reflection about what's been going on on my phone for the last two hours. That's a really hard thing to do. Most people don't really do that. And because it's difficult to detect bots and the tools that do detect bots were like, well, maybe it's a bot, maybe it's not. How do you actually refute someone's stance to say, oh, well, actually, there are a lot of bots that are sending out this information. So your argument's not wrong. How do you disprove that? Because it's pretty difficult to prove that there are bots. So then you just have this wide open sort of valley for people to come in and spread misinformation. Yeah. The, like the, the number one readers of text in the future are machines. And it's okay to anticipate that the authors and promoters of text of the future are machines. And so going in with some base level of skepticism seems like a healthy thing to do. Yeah. And this is, it puts platforms in a difficult position because some bots are really good and really helpful and we love them and we use them. Other bots are really harmful, but either side, those are really difficult to detect. It's not like there's a little bot icon next to, you know, your Twitter handle or your Facebook account that says, FYI, this is a bot just so you should know. So they have to use all these metrics to try to figure out when something is a harmful bot. 
and that they're not really successful at that. But also bots stir up sort of chaos and chaos is good for platforms in many ways because that increases traffic and discussion and engagement with the platform so then they can sell more ads. Yeah, it's almost as if platforms are simultaneously incentivized and disincentivized to abide bots. Business is good, right? When when bots are active. Yeah, I mean, so, I, I mean, until the humans leave and then if it's just bots, that could be problematic. Yeah, perhaps that was an oversimplification but the humans haven't left. The humans have threatened to leave a plethora of times, but no one leaves. I mean, it's it's similar to, you know, we talked about Parler. A lot of the folks that are, you know, the high profile right-wing figures on Parler that are active are still active on Twitter as long as their account hasn't been deleted. They're still active on Facebook. They're still active on YouTube. So while they're sort of shaming these these practices or, or shaming these sites, they're still really active on these sites and they use them to their full extent possible. Yeah. Uh, my parlor account is completely ruined at this point because they've collapsed notifications and timeline together so that any time anyone who I follow on parlor sends a message at all, that shows up as a notification. So I literally have lost track of any conversation that I was a part of during during my earlier time with the app. So something changed there. I wonder if there will be bots on Parler, but maybe that's a discussion for another day. I mean, there might already be bots on Parler and who knows? There's just no way to look into the platform to figure out which posts are automated, which posts aren't. And even though platforms like Twitter and Facebook do provide researchers with some data, that data is still really difficult to use to figure out whether something is a bot or not because the bots are trying to mimic human behavior. Yeah, and I feel like this is maybe a decent place to wind up in that the we often think about misinformation, bots, botnets, trolling. It's very easy for us to think about this as like at the consumer level. Right? A whole lot of information literacy training is all about the consumer level and I, you know, n- no one here is going to say that the consumer the information consumer doesn't have a role to play here. But what the platforms do and how the platforms cooperate with researchers and others it is a really important ingredient to making sure that this stuff doesn't be that this stuff isn't like a permanent and harmful part of the, the kind of information and social media landscape. And I think it's important for the public to understand these terms because often in the media, these terms are thrown out pretty loosely that, oh, well, this something is disinformation when, well, someone just made a mistake and said something that was incorrect. Their purpose wasn't to deceive. So no, that's not disinformation. That's misinformation. Or they might accuse, you know, bots are doing this thing online when there's not actually a lot of quantitative evidence that shows that that's actually happening. So it's important for consumers of news uh, for it's important for us as consumers of news to be educated and to sort of make a mental note to check when these terms are used, are they actually using them correctly? Yeah. So the the kind of battle against these different things is kind of constant and, and really time consuming. Right. Both sides are using them, you know, just like your example of, Oh, well, someone says, you know, all of your information is being tweeted out by bots. So your argument is not legitimate. That's happening offline as well as online too. Yeah. And I, I think it, it makes sense that if someone has gone through all the work to register a bunch of fake accounts, to create or work with a piece of software that's going to coordinate those bots, to train those bots up on a particular talking point, to surveil social media, to figure out where to intervene, to have this complex vocabulary of actions 
maybe not complex, but somewhat nuanced vocabulary of actions to boost a hashtag, spam a hashtag, send out a bunch of links, try to uh, move uh, or inject certain bits of your conversation or other content into other people's social media circles. All that sounds really smart and time consuming. And it seems unreasonable to expect that somebody just scrolling through their phone casually is going to just be able to thwart that by being a smarty pants. Like it's just not going to happen. There's a, has to be some kind of not completely symmetrical, but partially uh, kind of reciprocal time investment here on the part of the consumer. As well as on the part of journalists and analysts that are, are doing the same thing. Right, right. All those things have to add up to, to be an effective kind of mitigation. All right. Any final thoughts? Yeah. So I think it's really important just to uh, you know, understand these base terms so that we can navigate when they're used in sort of everyday discourse or they're used as part of an argument to delegitimize something we can understand because missing disinformation is kind of at its sort of hottest point right now in our public discourse across the world. Yeah, I think that's an awesome place to wrap up. So thanks for joining us this week, and we will see you in the next one. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, try library.asu.edu slash data.